Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So, welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our September episode of the Journal Club. How are you, Ben? Uh, good. Glad we've got over our tech issues and uh, jumping into some good discussions. Yes, excellent. Uh, well, first thing to say is as we're recording this, this is Healthcare Simulation Week. We'll probably be wrapped up by the time we've released it, but I see a lot of things going on for those not in the know. This is an initiative of the Society for Simulation in Healthcare in the US, but obviously picked up by a lot of other healthcare groups around the world, and a lot of people are making little videos and doing profiles of their simulation centres. So on the social media, if you're interested in Healthcare Simulation Week, you'll find lots of great stuff. So uh, thank you to those who've been promoting the cause. Uh, All right, Ben, four papers this month, and uh, we're going to start with one that I'm going to talk about, which is talking about a simulation consultation service. Will we start off with that one? Sounds good. I'm a little bit jealous. This is a special article, that's the category, in Simulation in Healthcare in August 2021. Uh, And it's from the group over at Fiona Stanley Hospital in Western Australia, Rory Trauber, Greg Sweetman and Leah Proctor. The title of the paper is Improving Simulation Accessibility in a Hospital Setting. Uh, subtitle, Implementing a Simulation Consultation Service. And Ben, I'm just going to start by quoting from their summary statement. By creating a simulation consultation service, the ethos of translational simulation can be made more accessible to all areas of the hospital. And this paper is essentially about how they run that consultation service uh, in their institution. So they give a bit of background to this and they talk about the role of healthcare simulation as a tool for quality and safety. They talk about how it can be used for identifying latent safety threats. They give a nice little discussion of safety too and high reliability organisational theory. And, of course, I would say this, they give quite a nod to translational simulation and some nice examples in the recent uh, literature. And then most of the paper goes on to describe how their service works. And their service, of course, has a nice little acronym, STEPS, simulation to enhance patient safety. Uh, And as I said, this operates in Fiona Stanley Hospital, which is large and new, 783 beds, most of the major uh, services that you could imagine. And I don't know exactly the time frame, but I think they've been open for about five years. Um, And they describe an issue which I think is really common, particularly in big hospitals, in that the simulation activity is often quite siloed and tends to predominate mainly in groups like yours, Ben, and mine, critical care, emergency departments, um, maternity, and then doesn't penetrate the rest of the hospital. So how does this work? Well, they have a pretty large faculty group in their STEPS crowd, um, I think it was a 20-something in all, mainly medical, 19 medical, five nursing, three physios, one sim uh, coordinator, all of them with a fair degree of training in simulation. And they contribute to this initiative um, sort of in kind in their non-clinical time. Uh, The governance of the group is through medical education, including managing the equipment. And perhaps the most useful part of the article is in their figure one where they show this lovely referral pathway. So I'm going to talk through this as though I was, you know, a client of the STEPS 
consultation service, let's say I was the stroke ward. And the pathway gives me a nice little idea about how I contact the service, how I define uh, what I'm trying to achieve, whether it's diagnosing some problems with the care we're giving to our stroke patients or whether it's around education. And then that gets picked up through an electronic process through the STEPS team and they have an intake committee meeting where they go through the applications, they work out if SIM is the right thing, and then they start to work with that team on when they're going to do it, how they're going to do it, what equipment they'll need, who they'll need to help them, and any kind of safety things. Uh, And as they point out, uh, one of the things they like to do is that there are multiple points of feedback and consultation with the group. So, uh, Ben, it's a nice little clear way that it operates. What did you think? Uh, well, I sent you some texts just saying how much I love this paper, uh, partly just because of the way it's beautifully written um, and some very eloquent sort of takedowns of common systemic problems uh, that we face in uh, healthcare when it comes to looking at the way we use M&M and um, the safety one versus safety two kind of conundrum. Um, but I think for me the real value in the paper is that sort of granularity and that the really helpful examples of how they've approached this problem. And I think it could address, uh, for many ways, I think there's, it's a very common problem for uh, groups of simulation instances in different hospitals to be very passionate, but very small subset of the hospital who rapidly become overwhelmed by uh, wanting to deliver too much uh, for too many people and then sort of Uh, failing and so I thought this sort of consultation example was a really great way also of demonstrating sustainability and how you can um, get more bang for your back by utilizing that expertise to also continue to grow uh, other simulation enthusiasts within the hospital. Yeah absolutely I wrote down some of the same kind of points Uh, It does seem very integrated with their clinical review processes and quality and safety and, as you say, expands out from what might be our traditional approaches of looking at adverse events. They say, without fear or favour, they're there to help stress test uh, clinical pathways. Um, Education is still very much still in scope, although they say they're quality and safety. They still do plenty of education. And um, another little shout-out here, they talk about their process of reporting their outcomes when they do these diagnostic simulations and they use Mel Barlow's documentation framework, which we've talked about on Simulcast and happy to provide another link to there. And so, yeah, I would say their activity is still fairly modest, 18 events over 10 months, but diverse, diverse departments, diverse locations, diverse objectives, uh, and with more than a little bit of a nod to maintaining the integrity of the system and other safety issues. So, look, I thought it was a lovely example of a process, feasible, practical, and addresses those challenges of potentially low resources for the internal central service and a very flexible approach. And and I think also in their discussion, they're thinking very hard about how they demonstrate their value through proactivity, marginal gains, and and a very clinician focus. So I really enjoyed it. So I did manage to get some audio from the lead author of that paper, Rory Trauber, and I asked him to give us an update about where the team were at now. And in here, he talks about their response to COVID, some nice principles about organisational change management, and the importance of them having reporting forms that are connected with their quality and safety group. Uh, A little bit about going forward. And by the way, you'll also hear some West Australian chickens featuring in this audio. Hi, Victoria and Ben. Thank you very much for reading and reviewing our paper on Simulcast. And uh, hello and thank you to all the listeners. Um, 
Pacey, where are we now? We're two week, two years on from our publishing of uh, the paper and creation of the Steps team. Well, we're much like everyone. COVID-19 has caused us a lot, a lot of trials and tribulations in our simulation activities. So currently we have been tasked by our hospital management group to lead the charge in vigorously testing our COVID-19 uh, clinical pathways and, and procedures. Part of that really has come about, I guess, because of raising awareness with hospital management and executive um, of what translational simulation programs can do. Um, and I think that's absolutely key, really, to the success of any program. Um, to a paper I sort of stumbled upon recently, which is by Peter Pruin and Michael Sterling, about the intra implementation of a space flight um, resource management program in NASA, published in 2008. You could, if you type in their authors' names and whatever literature search, you'll find it's a cracker. Um, to quote them, really getting organizational change from the bottom up is a bit like sort of dragging a beached whale up a beach uh, with a rope. So not entirely enjoyable and not without a humongous amount of effort. Really, once you get top-down buy-in, um, life does become much easier. Also engagement, I think, with key hospital figures such as our MET coordinator and our um, Recognition Responding to Acute Deterioration Committee have been absolutely vital. One of the key things to do that, I think, is, is the embracement of a standardised reporting form. We, we used um, an adapted version of Mel Barlow's, which, which is really, really vital. Um, we incorporated the Western Australia clinical risk matrix into ours. And, and again, that's a language that is known and spoken by management and exec. And it, it just allows you to really clearly display any latent threats um, and holes that you might find um, and allows people to really appreciate, you know, the, what, what it is you're doing. I think going forward, what I'd like to see is that obviously we're going to be continually adapting and adjusting to COVID-19 and our healthcare institutions. Um, any solutions we find now with our, you know, procedures and policies are likely to not be relevant in three or six months time. You know, as our patient demographic changes, different variants come in and then the reintroduction of business as usual. So never more has there been a vital time for healthcare institutions to, uh, to, to embrace and, and utilize local SIM teams and translational SIM. So yeah, so I look, I think, thank you very much for, for your time. Thanks for reading it and reviewing it. And I hope, you know, um, good luck with all your simulation activities. Some wise words from the author of a great paper. What do you think, Ben? I particularly like the quote just at the end, enabling frontline staff to use simulation to ask the question, push the button, test the system and find the solution. Yeah, and I think that's the holy grail, isn't it? If you just think about this as a tool that clinicians can use and that they seek out as opposed to some special thing that is inaccessible. So I think that word accessibility in the title is an important one. So uh, the next paper is entitled A Cognitive Aid Improves Adherence to Guidelines for Critical Endotracheal Intubation in the Resuscitation Room. Uh, it's a randomized controlled trial with mannequin-based in situ simulation, and it was published in Simulation in Healthcare. I'm going to mangle this uh, French name. I apologize to the authors, but it's by Ben Hodour et al. And I guess this article really fits in the 
simulation as a re- reproducible standardized testing space type article where sim is used specifically to diagnose the impact of particular interventions within a simulated reproducible clinical care setting. And so in this case, the question of whether a cognitive aid on safe intubation uh, will improve adherence with an emergency department specific guidelines on the same. So this was a two-centre randomised trial from France in which 17 teams of two clinicians, a doctor and a nurse in each one, go through a simulation of an alcohol and drug overdosed adult patient who's requiring intubation urgently, uh, and it's designed to measure the impact of putting a cognitive aid within that in-situ space. So the authors identify the importance of safe intubation and how inherently risky a procedure this is, uh, and uh, acknowledge that there's some conflicting evidence about the benefits of checklists during intubation. So if you're not a, a critical care person, there's certainly been a big movement to intubation checklists um, and sort of challenge response type lists uh, pre-RSI in the emergency department, and certainly in Queensland is pretty well embedded now, I think, within most departments. I'm not sure how it is worldwide. It's very popular and and designed as a safety check to make sure that you've anticipated uh, serious complications, that you've got the right equipment ready, and that the team is embedded and on board with the process. So instead, the authors here designed what they call a cognitive aid uh, rather than a checklist. And I do feel like they sort of allude to not liking checklists, but I couldn't quite work out why. Um, And they outline in their aid five primary pillars, equipment and positioning, hemodynamic optimization, respiratory optimization, drug prep, and post-intubation checks onto an A4 laminated sheet that they put on their crash cart. I was very interested in their discussion about that, having read some of the same material, because it does seem not, not all checklists are created equal. And having read some material from Michael Aurier and Scott Weingart about how to make a good checklist, it's not just a matter of dreaming up, uh, here's a long list of things to tick, but there is a trade-off between brevity and detail uh, and those sorts of things. So I think the distinction is an important one, Uh, So in essence, these 17 doctor-nurse pairings run through a mannequin-based simulation in their real emergency rooms, and they're observed and scored by direct and video observation on 30 criteria for performance, including things like checking the ventilator, venous access, pre-oxygenation, and the ETT positioning checked after intubation. And half of the groups get a cognitive aid placed on their crash crash cart without any particular training on it, and half of the groups don't get one. And in terms of assessing, uh, you know, this RCT, the randomized groups seem pretty similar. They've broken them down nicely into location, exposure to SIM, situations they've experienced in real life, and whether they'd experienced that SIM before within their service. And the groups are similar enough. Uh, the nurses were not randomized for practical reasons, which I, I wasn't quite sure about. Um, but the rooms are exactly the same as their normal rooms. They use real drugs. So in terms of the assessment of the intervention, it does seem like the main thing they change is that in the two groups was the presence of the cognitive aid and the rest was pretty similar. So what do they find? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, they find that the presence of a cognitive aid in the room does increase participants' score on a median of 24 out of 30 to 28 out of 30, with five particular criteria being significantly higher the suction being connected, capnography being ready, 
difficult intubation equipment being requested, pre-oxygenation and ETT placement being checked with capnography. So some pretty clinically significant criteria to score higher in some ways, I would say, and sometimes some things that are easier to neglect. Most of the other scores out of 30 weren't really super changed, which maybe reflects that there's a few things people are more likely to forget on a frequent basis. They also identified some interesting ancillary data when we're looking at how people use cognitive aids, like the fact that when using the aids, usually only the physician used it, and that it was rarely used as a checklist and was actually more used as a step-by-step guide to the procedure uh, throughout the simulation, and that it was rarely used post-intubation. And for those of you who don't intubate, there's often a big sense of relief once the tube gets in, uh, which can lead us to us getting sort of sloppy with the fine-tuning. So uh, I can see that sort of instinct to put the cognitive aid down once you've achieved your primary goal of getting the tube in rather than necessarily securing it and making sure it's safe. So I guess my question is, what does this mean for us clinically? And Vic, I'm I'm just not sure. So I think when I read this article, I'm really struck between the tension between how we assess the efficacy of an intervention versus the things we would do in real life to actually make that intervention effective. And nobody's trained on this cognitive aid. It's just sort of placed in the trolley. From a study design perspective, that makes sense. They're assessing its existence, impact on that team. But I'm not sure how to translate that assessment of impact into a real-life setting. And I also think it's kind of unsurprising that a scoring system based on a cognitive aid designed for a department increases the score for the team who's given the scorecard during their performance. What were your thoughts? <laughs> You're quite right, Ben. It's uh, not such a surprise that a cognitive aid improves compliance with a cognitive aid. Uh it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about your point there until right now, because, and in fact, it came up for us today at our trauma and critical care meeting. And I think it comes down to: do you invest your time in training, or do you invest your time in real-time clinical support? Because, in fact, this is a great example where a good quality cognitive aid pushes you further ahead without doing any training. And we were discussing actually also to do with airway management, should we be training a large number of relatively junior providers or should we put our focus on how do we get teams to have cognitive aids in the real in the, in the moment? And I think we've underestimated the value of cognitive aids on their own if they're well-designed and if they're useful. Uh, a couple of points I guess I wanted to sort of pick up on here is that, um, as you said, uh, this is about using your simulation as a research test bed. The research isn't about the sim. The research is in the sim. Um, and I think for me there is a little bit of statistical nuance to this because, as you say, we've got some quoted statistical significance, but we do have to extrapolate that and say, is there clinical significance? So the people that didn't use the cognitive aid were actually two minutes faster in their preparation. They said, oh, well, that's not statistically significant, but it might have been if they had more numbers, if the study wasn't powered for that. Maybe two minutes is a really big difference if you've got a sick patient that you're trying to get intubated. Likewise, um, if you actually look at, as you said, while the mean score was different in terms of they got 24 points instead of 28 points or whatever it was, the individual elements that were different weren't that many. So it's hard to know whether this compliance with the checklist would have translated to safer intubations, better first-pass success, um, less hypotension or hypoxia. But I, you know, empathise. This is a really difficult research to do as a one-off. You've sort of got to do multiple stages of things and see how they work. 
And I think if nothing else, if you are getting a cognitive aid ready for use, you should be testing it in this kind of environment. That's really the take-home because it does give you an idea about, A, what your teams are missing when they don't use a cognitive aid, but also if the cognitive aid is usable. And they did have some material about that, and I think that's also important. This should also be seen as feasibility testing as much as it is um, how much do people comply with a uh, checklist when you provide them with one. Mm, agreed. Great points. So we move on to some more virtual concerns. Yeah, we do love a bit of virtual concern. Go for it. So uh, the next paper is entitled Online Synchronized Clinical Simulation, an Efficient Teaching Learning Option for the COVID Pandemic Time and Beyond. And it's by Diego Andre Diaz Guillo et al. And it's published as an Innovation in Advances in Simulation. And the paper is broad. So it has three main objectives to establish the efficacy of online synchronized clinical simulation on the learning and performance of medical students management patients of patients with COVID, to determine the quality of the online debriefing from the student's perspective that occurred during the study, and then to deepen the understanding of how learning is generated with this methodology. And I'd have to say the third one was kind of the one that really pricked up my ear uh, when reading the article. So the article starts out by describing how an estimated 1.3 billion students have withdrawn from their daily academic routines, about 70% of the worldwide student population. And the authors outline the various types of non-presential, they call it, so not being present in the room simulation, and argue that there's been some promising uh, findings, but also some doubts, particularly regarding feasibility, logistical aspects, and how learning is generated in that methodology. They also describe how when COVID started out, everyone sort of went online with all of their teaching, but how certainly locally they got a sense of learner disengagement with this format after a while, particularly sort of the online Zoom webinars type format, which certainly echoes some of my local experience with our trainees as well. In addition to that, they highlight some things I probably wouldn't have considered. So the socioeconomic challenges that can occur for students in low and middle income countries where connectivity and internet speeds is not able to be taken for granted and the impact that that can have on their learning as well. So this was a comparative before and after study with a mixed design, which was held in three simulation centres in South America. And the researchers ran six cases related to COVID, such as a young woman with upper GI bleeding and respiratory symptoms, a 76-year-old man with a hip fracture and heart disease, and a pregnant 32-year-old woman with impending respiratory failure at 40 weeks gestation. And the cases were run via Zoom, with engineers operating the ALS and SimMum simulator monitor and transmitting vitals and images. And there were some teachers doing the briefing and debriefing, as well as evaluating the students. And there were some confederates as well. And each case had a stage director who communicated with the patient and the nurse through the Zoom chat. So it's a pretty complex thing to pull off. The teachers evaluated student performance based on a validated rating scale, and then they evaluated cognitive engagement using a framework called the Interactive, Constructive, Active, and Passive Framework, or the ICAP. And then finally, the questions, not finally, actually, then the the learners completed a 20-question Likert scale survey for the participants, exploring their perception of learning, teamwork, communication, and realism. And then in addition to this, they asked the students to fill out a DASH student form to rate the effectiveness of the debriefing they'd received. 
They added some open-ended qualitative questions about the strengths and weaknesses of the online simulation, and they analyzed that as well. So it was a lot of digging, Vic. Oh, absolutely. And I have to take my hat off to them. Very exhaustive and take my hat off to their students because I think if you survived the evaluation of the uh, of the training, uh, that was a, quite a good sign that they were somewhat engaged. Yeah. I think it's not it's not inappropriate in the sense that this is really hard to know the outcome. So I'm glad they've cast a wide net. I don't know quite what to make of their results, but I'll let you get on to that. Yeah, so uh, uh, with all this wide net, there were 14 simulation sessions run with a mean length of 102 minutes, which involved two cases and debriefs within that. And the participants rated the online simulation as superior to their usual webinars. There was an improvement in performance that was proportional to their education level. And there was a widespread of cognitive engagement between passive and active, who around 10% each, and constructive and interactive, which is about 34 to 45% each. And the students rated the simulations highly with regard to realism, learning, non-technical skills, and active learning strategies, and they liked the debrief. Um, the qualitative analysis showed that the students liked and valued the realism and social interaction and felt that the weaknesses were the IT-related issues and a lack of motor skill practice in particular, which I guess has always been my concern about the value of these things given their complexity. So, look, I, I kind of felt like this study took um, a broad swipe at a, at a less researched topic and, and a new form of simulation. And it certainly came away with some insight into what students value about virtual sim, which to me was mostly that they value it more than an online webinar uh, and that they like social learning. Yeah, that was a big takeaway for me as well. It just really underlines the importance of the social nature of learning and, and how we can make that happen. Uh, yeah, there are a few interesting things for me here, and I, I picked it out because I think this is one of a large number of publications that we're seeing in simulation and indeed educational literature in relating to people's responses to the pandemic, and it's good to try and tease out what's working, what isn't working, what do we need to keep, what is really holding us back. Uh, and and so also the terminology is interesting, this non-presential, this is the first time I'd seen that, but we've seen lots of other terminology, remote, online, tele-simulation. Um, I guess the couple of cautions I have with that is I think it probably is more fun and more interesting than a webinar, but that's not quite the comparison. If we're thinking about um, comparing it to face-to-face -to -face simulation, I don't think we can quite pretend it's clinical interaction because it's not. It's really interaction with a monitor, and I guess that's one of my concerns, the work that we did looking at working with simulated patients versus mannequins, trying to see medical students just fixating on monitor data as their source of whether a patient is sick actually can be a potential negative training impact. And so I think that is hard to measure with the kind of what things are measured here. And I think, uh, and maybe this group wouldn't have done that anyway, but they were pretty much all medical trainees, weren't they? Uh, so I don't think there was any multidisciplinary or authentic teamwork, but, you know, that maybe wasn't there. Uh, focus. So I'm not going to be critical of that. I'm just saying there are limitations to the format, which I'm sure the authors are more than um, cognizant of. I almost feel like that was part of the nature of the sim design, that it had to be a group of medical people mentally rehearsing what they would do and then a role play of that being enacted. Yeah. Yeah, which isn't such a terrible idea. Um, I think it's, yeah, and certainly better than just very bland 
uh, non-scenario-based discussion on a webinar. Uh, that said, I had a pretty f- grounding experience in interactive online learning today. Have you ever seen the game Flappy Bird? Yeah, I've, I've seen Flappy Bird, yeah. Yeah, well, apparently I was reading about these people that get online engagement by telling all their students to share the screen and play Flappy Bird for five minutes and then see who gets the highest score. And that would actually get you quite high scores on some of those uh, <laughs> metrics. My point is you just have to be careful when we ask people, does he enjoy stuff and is it good for learning? And the perceptions of how good it is generally will be quite positive. So it's uh, it's challenging to tease out what's effective in amongst what's enjoyable and feels engaging and is social learning, which is big and positive. Yeah, I, I worry that as a community we've sort of gone, well, we were doing face-to-face simulation where we physically rehearsed complex psychomotor tasks and now we can't, so we do it virtually and making some equivalent assumptions that we need to be careful about. Like I, I do think there's value in particularly maybe at the med student level sharing that cognitive process of how do we approach this patient and assess them in a stepwise manner and what values are we transmitting at that same stage and um but yeah i think it's a very different beast with a very different purpose yeah i think my Mm. hope is that we use some of this sort of format as a preparation for face-to-face simulation in the future rather than taking a really big leap from learn something in a textbook and then just come and do it in a sim. I think that middle step is what I would hope we get out of this uh, pandemic fueled tele, remote, uh, virtual or uh, non-presential simulation, whatever we're going to call it. Sounds good. All right, well, we're staying in the technology zone for this next paper. Uh, This is a review article from Simulation Healthcare, also August 2021. Uh, This is by Mies O'Hagan and Chang. Uh, And it's entitled Health Provider Stress and Virtual Reality Simulation, a Scoping Review. And it seems one of many scoping reviews that I'm seeing emerging in the uh, simulation literature. Uh, This is from uh, authors who are US-based. And again, I'll quote from their summary statement because I think it's quite useful and unusually for a scoping review they come out very strong with their results so they say the results of this scoping review have shown the positive effect that virtual reality simulation can have on mitigating the negative aspects of stress during simulation and clinical training as well as improving provider performance and affect which is pretty big call so uh, how did they get to that endpoint? Well, they start with a background with a couple of fairly big issues that are, I think, well understood, that simulation is stressful for participants and that may create unhelpful cognitive load. They also say sim is very resource intensive for providers and we know that. Uh, their contention is that screen-based and digital simulation might help both these issues, especially now that technology and this immersive VR is better than it used to be. And uh, in discussing that, they cite evidence about VR training helping improving response to stress in other industries and having a kind of stress inoculation effect, but also in clinical situations of um, post-traumatic stress disorder. So they ended up with a study question, which is how is VR in the healthcare literature addressing stress experienced by healthcare providers delivering patient care? 
So a few concepts conjoined there, but um, I'm with them. So they did a scoping review. They described that uh, in the usual sort of quality measures, uh, formal using Joanna Briggs Institute and Prisma methodology. Uh, and they looked at the literature on VR and stress, but only as it pertained to clinical providers uh, in working in clinical settings. And their results, they had 10 studies, six of which were RCTs, uh, mostly, again, relating to doctors and medical students, which is interesting. Uh, the studies used various technologies and VR systems, but I think relatively equivalent in many ways. And what they were testing in these studies was also variable. Some of them were procedural tasks. Some of them were, and I quote, stress-inducing events. Others were mental rehearsal before um, a procedure. And again, they used a variety of assessment tools to decide whether stress had been generated or not or what impact it was. And if you're looking to do any kind of research on stress, can I just recommend Table 2 in here because it's an astounding list of the assessment tools that we can use for stress, some that people might know well, such as the State Trait Anxiety Inventory, um, that NASA uh, Task Load Index, um, but also a whole variety of others that I had never heard of. So some useful information there. And uh, unsurprisingly, the research drew from a variety of these things. And their conclusion was that using this immersive VR can produce a stress response and that that can have an inoculation effect in that repeated exposure to the VR reduces the stress with subsequent exposure um, and reduces cognitive load in the training sessions but also in clinical ones that it has a transfer factor. So this is a pretty big thing. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, look, I guess the thing I was, like there were quite strong conclusions from a fairly small group of studies was my main puzzler. And I guess um, I think that sometimes comes down to the methodology, doesn't it, in that you can do a review, get a certain amount of papers and find some consistent themes um, and particularly when we're sort of in that nascent uh, part of a technological or um, interventional development, uh, that is a good thing to start getting those early mm. uh, biopsies of how effective is this. Uh, but you're right with a huge useful. publication bias generally towards positive outcomes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. And, I would say the same thing. And I can see why they did a, for instance, scoping review versus systematic review because there was a lot of variability within the studies. One of the other things that was interesting was there was a predominance of surgical procedural focus for the topics they were doing. And I'd say that's probably for a couple of reasons. One is there's probably more commercial interest in those things, uh, but possibly also because they're a bit easier to VR. Uh, to put into VR maybe because it's a sort of very defined technical challenge as opposed to some other stress-inducing events like calling the inpatient registrar or whatever. It can be harder to make something other than a, uh, uh, well, I think when we, when, it's, it's interesting, Ben, because we're actually looking at doing some work on stress exposure simulation. So I've been reading this literature on, on stress and what induces it and emergency medicine trainees wearing heart rate monitors Calling inpatient teams, that's when you get the spikes. Compared to doing CPR and life-saving yeah. procedures, they don't mm -hmm. cause anything mm -hmm. like the same stress as calling the, for the inpatient consultations. So uh, take away from that what you will. Uh, so many things. One of my other takeaways here was uh, really just 
how there is very little agreed upon measures for the degree and effects of stress on healthcare providers. You know, it looks like we've got 25 tools and no one's ever come together and said, should we just kind of make a consensus statement about what we think is good? Uh, I guess looking into it, they do measure slightly different things. So maybe that's not a feasible idea. Uh, and then the last thing for me was, uh, and again, this is going to come up in the research we're hoping to do, is that it has a very individual focus. And I think it neglects one really important thing, which is one of the biggest mitigators, both of stress experienced as well as impact on performance is the team. And that often helps a lot of people with their stress and uh, cross monitoring helps the team perform despite one or a number of people feeling stressed. So I uh, enjoyed reading it, though, immensely, and I think we're going to see more. And uh, uh, as we say, if we can try and, you know, one of the downsides to what we're planning to do, it's really hard to get registrars and nurses through enough stress exposure sims to get any kind of so-called inoculation effect, whereas maybe if people could do 10 minutes with their VR headset on, that would be something more feasible. So I think it's important. Yeah, agreed. Uh, certainly particularly because we... I do feel, especially in medical rotation, like our, our whole strategy is basically you'll be right, chuck you into a new subspecialty and eventually you get okay at it, but you start out pretty not okay with it and it's just this relentless kind of thing that we do. Um, and I think nursing is a lot better at preparing both mentally and conceptually about moving even to a new area within the ED uh, than medicine does. Uh, I think we skate by a lot by our hubris um and and so yeah i think some of these strategies could really be useful because certainly i would have found as an intern being able to mentally rehearse some of those uh, things beforehand uh really useful yeah absolutely and uh i wish i knew a little bit more about the exact technology of it but i'd say that time is coming because uh we're all going to be using it one way or another it's just good to have a rigorous idea about what to do before jumping in too soon is my personal view hmm. All right, Ben. Well, uh, hopefully you've got a good rest of September planned. I do. I have two weeks holiday, actually, so I'm very excited. I'll be coming to see you at the beach, I'm sure. Oh, that is excellent. Uh, and just for simulcast listeners, we'll give a little heads up. Uh, we are going to do an episode shortly on equity, diversity and inclusion in simulation based on a blog post uh, Eve Purdy has just authored. And I'm also going to do a episode shortly with Deborah Nestel and the new International Journal of Simulation, doing a little profile of that. Oh, that is exciting. That is exciting. So mm. a little bit of news uh, ahead. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much, Ben. Uh, lovely as always. Thanks for having me. All right. This is Victoria Brazel signing off for the September Journal Club of Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast.